We now have the privilege of hearing from another Godobador who also makes himself available and is a more of our community, Rabbi Mordechai Willig. Kavod Gadol to introduce him to us tonight. For me it's a double Kavod Gadol. A Kavod Gadol to appear before you this evening in the presence of Rabbi Schneidman Shlita of the Marada Asra as well as of course to speak uh, the same program with Rav Shech the Shalita is always a very special kavod and Rav Shech the Shalita asked me to bring to your attention a beautiful sefer about what's, uh, which is called Hadrachal and Isuin, also called Binyan Adei Ad by Rav Yol Schwartz one of the very insightful and far looking Gedolim of Yerushalayim, a man who was not boxed in into any particular group. Those who know him personally are very always spent the Shabbos in my house some years back. A very special person, and uh, Rav Shechter recommended. So, need I say more? <laughs> I was asked to speak about different topics than the ones that Rav Shechter spoke about. He speaking spoke primarily but gross to Shaduchim, and mine was entitled a survival uh, <laughs> not to grow but just to survive <laughs> have to survive in order to be able to grow and I was asked uh, by um, the committee to speak about certain specific topics and I will try to fulfill my mandate the first involves more of a sheer format, uh, and after that we will will be more of a, uh, a lecture format. One of the issues I was asked to speak about, and it, it is certainly a thorny issue uh, in the survival of the shidduch process, and it is an issue which uh, becomes more pronounced when an individual is a little bit older and is in the midst of the shidduch process is dealing with parents it's not a new issue dealing with parents about shidduch has always been a, an issue always been around and how is it done in our world now you are familiar after all you were in shul yesterday when the first shidduch was described with great length and you probably were aware of the fact that the main person, Yitzchak, is nowhere to be seen. It's a classical arranged marriage. And in some segments of society today, this is still the norm. Arranged marriages. I believe it can be said that we'll, we'll call in pre-emancipation Europe most of the marriages were arranged those are the times when most families were observant and they were following the old-fashioned mores and most marriages were arranged this extended even into the post-emancipation period in many parts of Europe some of you may still be familiar with some of the lyrics and the Broadway lyrics that I remember from my youth that uh, 
something about matchmaker, matchmaker, something like that. And the, the, one of the punchlines was that they're prepping me to marry whoever Papa picks or something like that. Whoever the father chooses, that's what I'm going to end up marrying. But that's good and bad. Takes a lot of the pressure off the youngsters, that's for sure. But on the other hand, the price you pay sometimes can be very steep. Some arranged marriages were done in a manner which the people who did marry were unhappy. And it was very sad that they lived unhappy lives based on the marriage choices made for them by the older generation. I believe that in the audience that's in this room this evening, I believe without exception, we're not dealing in that kind of a world. This is not to say that parents don't have any input in the should process of anybody in the room. But the classical arranged marriage uh, is not that prevalent in the society that I'm addressing this evening. Well, then this leaves an open question. Should we therefore completely ignore any input that our parents may have? Or should we take the words into very careful consideration? So the Ramah, the classical posek for Ashkenazim, writes in the Oradea, in the very end of the Simon Reish Mem, the Simon which is discussing the mitzvah of Kibbut Avaim, that if a person wants to marry a man wants to marry a woman, and the father says no, that the individual is not required to obey the father. Ramon said so. And some have taken this carte blanche to whatever the father says, ignore him completely. After all, I have the Ramon on my side. Ramon says, no need to listen to a father in matters of Shidduchim. I believe, however, that a more careful examination of the sources yields a much more nuanced conclusion. It's not a one-word yes or no answer. And the first part of my, of my remarks this evening will be a mini sheer discussing some of these considerations. Among the reasons given for this psak of the Ramah whose origin is in the Chuvas Maharik is the following line of reasoning. There's no need to obey a parent. Obedience is not one of the mitzvahs. We have Kibbut Ava'im which is honoring a parent. We have Mora Ava'im which is revering a parent. But nowhere are we taught that one must obey a parent. Hence, if an individual wants to marry a woman and the father says no, say sorry, I have no obligation to obey. This is obviously a much more far-reaching decision, not limited to matters of Shidduchim. It eliminates, as some would have it, the entire 
obligation of obedience. One need not obey a parent. In fact, I believe, this is the position of many of the poskim. There's no obligation to obey. Period. However, other prominent authorities disagree. The source of this disagreement is a Gemara in Kiddushin, Rashi quotes it in Chumash, the beginning of Parshas Kedoshin. There we are taught, Ish imo v'oviv tiro. Ish, in this case, is taken to be a masculine form. To exclude a female. And the Gemara comments, this does not mean to say that a female is exempt from kibbutz avaim or mora avaim in general, but rather, once she marries, is rishus acherim oleha. She is now, again, once she is married, she has to take into account what the husband has to say. And as a result of that, she is exempted from something. What is that something? What is the something? So there are two classical super commentaries that explain every line in Rashi. The first is the Mizrahi. The Mizrahi says, Mizrahi says, we cannot understand this statement in its simple sense. Ish imo vi others tiro. Tiro means revere. He finds no contradiction between reverence for a husband and reverence for a parent. The fact that a woman has entered into a marriage can in no way relieve her from the mitzvah to revere her father and mother. The Gemara teaches us, for example, examples of reverence, not to sit in the father's place, not to contradict the father. So one can argue, if the woman gets married and moves far away to her husband's home, used to be near her husband's parents' home, as Tosas there points out, so it's even easier to fulfill the biblical mandate of Mora. She's a thousand miles away, she's not going to sit in her seat, and she's not going to contradict him. Therefore, the Mizrahi suggests a Talmudic phrase, Im eno inyan, which means if we cannot interpret this verse in the context of Mora, Ish of Tiro, Tneu inyan the Kavod. Rather, we should take this exemption and place it in the realm of Kibar Avayim. What is Kibar Avayim? The Gemara tells us. Offering services to a parent. Feeding and clothing. You just can't do that if you're, far, if you're a thousand miles away. can't be done. So a woman who's expected to marry, and typically, again, in those days, when they married, they would live near the husband's parents, probably for economic reasons. So, she's, she's relieved from kibud. But Mora, reverence, 
certainly applies. This is what the Mizrahi says. The Maralmi Prague, the famous Maral, in his commentary, the Gurari and Chumash, and that very same comment of Rashi and Parshas Kedoshim, says no. And I quote, Umasha over al that which one doesn't obey a parent, who over lack of obedience is a lack of moro. Sometimes she has to go against the command of her father. Her father says, give me food. And husband says, no, take care of me. So he overes mora. The morale goes further and tells us that this mora is included in the Talmudic phrase, so seres tvarov. To contradict a parent, one need, need not contradict him or her verbally. If actions speak louder than words, so a contradiction in action is more than in words, and even an inaction. Hence, the Maral writes that a married woman, because of her primary responsibility towards her husband, will be put in a situation where she's going to have to, in effect, disobey her father and mother. And that itself is a violation, if you will, of moral. So, if one accepts the opinion of Mizrahi, there's no obligation to obey a parent, we understand very well why when it comes to Shaduchim, for example, the Maharik tells us one need not obey a parent. Because in general, one need not obey a parent. So why should Shaduchim be any different? However, if one accepts the opinion of the Maralmi Prague, we have to be more careful in our analysis of the words of the Maharik, which are the underpinnings of the Ramah that we mentioned at the beginning of this year. The Chazonish, one of the greatest Gedolim of the two generations ago, tells us as follows. This is a quote. If a father really means for the better interest of his child, and he has pain when the child marries a woman that is in the father's best wisdom is not good for his child. Why should he be permitted to cause pain to the father? Ve'eno bichlal mora, would it not be a violation of, of reverence? Ve'loma dover zekal misoset zvara b'achras hadas uvad, is that isn't that much more serious than simply contradicting the father on a on some point of an argument? So what then does the Marik mean? If the Marik says he ought to obey a father, what does he really mean? Quote. Shehaav Sarich Levatel Ritsono Mipnei Ritson Beno Bichihai Gavna. Referring to a case 
that the father is required to forego his own desires in such a circumstance. The son is not required to fulfill such a command. So just to take another example. If one's parent tells a child, I'd like you to run around the block the whole day. Just just the whole day walking around the block. Don't do anything else. Walk around the block. There is no obligation to obey such a command because the, man, the command is unreasonable. The father should realize that this is not good for the son and therefore his command is an unreasonable one. And if it's unreasonable, there is no obligation of obedience. However, if it is a reasonable command, says Chazonish, then the child must in fact obey. Let's go back to Shidduch. Parents make reasonable and unreasonable demands upon their children in this realm, as in other realms. If the demand is unreasonable, one need not obey. If it is reasonable, according to this analysis, one must obey. Of course, the question becomes, who is to decide whether it is reasonable or unreasonable? We know the answer to that question. Das You have to ask a rov. Shofar should be a What's unreasonable today may have been reasonable hundred years ago. In the time of arranged marriages, so that's how society was running. So the father tells the son, marry this girl. Why? Why? I chose her. That's why. Can I meet her? You'll see her under the chuppah. What are you worried about? <laughs> so maybe in some societies that was reasonable. So you have to, you have to obey. Today that's unreasonable. At least in our part of the world. But of course, there are gray areas. That's clear. So, so, so you need a rough to decide. But the question is, who's rough? You know, they used to say a joke, Fayoma Ace of Yeshli Rough. That, you know, everyone has a rough. So, so who's rough? So what I guess is good news for most of the people in the audience today, it seems to me clear that it is the child's rov that makes this call. Now, the rov must be chosen, like as in any halachic situation, not because of the expediency, you know what the answer you're going to get. You can trust the rov's Yerushamayim and his common sense and his grasp of the, of the facts. But once the child chooses such a rov, and the father says, well, my rov says the opposite, the, best, the only game he has is to have his rough call up the other rough. That's his only game to play. But this is a far cry from what some say is carte blanche. Completely ignore what the parents say in matters of Shidduch. Truth is, for survival, 
that theory is much easier. You can just ignore the parents completely. So then, hey, it, it, you don't have to worry about it. However, it seems to me that the view of the Maharal and the Chazanish is the more accepted view. Not everyone agrees to that. Uh, I think that that should be followed, uh, even if it makes survival somewhat more difficult. As I mentioned before, when people get older, it becomes a little bit more tense, this relationship. As a matter of fact, the Gemara tells us in the Sechta Kedushin that a, a parent should try very hard to marry off the child. Again, the whole system in the Gemara is marrying off children, not children getting married, marrying off children. Of course, as you know, in Hasidic communities to this very day, that's how it's referred to. You call up a, a Hasidic relative, oh, I just made a Shidduch, did a Shidduch, whatever, which doesn't, that means that they just, their child just became engaged. But that's, that's just so happens. But I made and did, that's how it's, even to this day. Although this, I think, much more input in the younger generation now than it was in previous generations, even in the Hasidic world. Gemara tells us, make sure, although it says been Shmoneser the Chuppah, the one should marry at age 18, I'm not recommending that today. Certainly not for men, I don't think they're mature enough at that age at this point in time. But, you know, this is a limit. Gemara tells us, not 18 and 20. Uh, you know, 20, I'm not recommending that either nowadays. But then the Gemara says, well, by 22 or 24, father should try to see that the child is married for a simple reason. After that, you don't have so much influence on the child. Now, the, the Ramah understood it literally. The Ramah said something which is unbelievable, at least in our world. He says, you know, a father shouldn't hit a child. Maket beno godol, the Gemara says, is a terrible thing. How old is old? So the Ritva says, godol means bar mitzvah. And he suggests maybe even earlier than that is a problem. So those who've read of Shlomo Valdus Svarim, or who are privileged to hear him, know of what he speaks. But the Rasma says, hit your child. Once he turns 22 or 24, you should stop hitting him. That's how you learn. That's a simple, simple read of the Gemara. That seems to me anyone who hits a child at 22 to 24 is completely misguided. But I have the Rasma. There it is. Again, things do change and the, the halachas don't change, the facts change. The reason for this prohibition is because the son's going to rebel. So, way before 22 or 24, it will lead to a rebellion nowadays. But getting back to what the most serious discussion, a parent's influence does become weaker as a result as the child gets older, becomes more independent. And it's something to discuss because there are many cases in which a parent objects to a shidduch and those who say, forget about the parent. It's completely irrelevant because his, the Ramos said so. It's not so simple. Not so simple. It's hard to give specific details. But, again, to give you a few examples, then it's Siv who lived uh, over a hundred years ago, has a tshuva, 
about this, in which he writes that if there is quote it's a degradation of the father, this marriage is prohibited to go through with the marriage. Now of course <laughs> if you take that literally, so it gives the father absolute veto power. It's an embarrassment to me that the the, the girl's family are not multi-millionaires or not Gedole Hador so I believe that that's, that's not reasonable and if it's not reasonable we can dis- disregard it but there are again I can't go into specific details now but later responses have addressed this head on and come to different kinds of conclusions Certainly, a case in which we can evaluate that the father really means for the child's well-being and has an objective criteria. The child is not absolved completely of the mitzvah of, of mora of aim. There are cases in which children are sometimes overcome by, and our Shekel spoke before about good looks, by what they perceive as good looks, or sometimes overcome by something else that our we shouldn't look after, which is money, and they make mistakes, mistakes in judgment. Truth to be told, these kinds of mistakes are often made by the parents. Some of them are more interested in money than the children are. And they're making the mistake in judgment. So once again, these kinds of situations go back to the rub and the rub of the, of the child. The hope is that in the parent-child relationship you should never have to go to a rub, to a third party to decide between them. There should be the warm and close relationship between parents and children and they should be able to work it out. If the father can convince his son it's just not a good idea the son should realize that the father is probably, probably telling the truth. And if not, then it's unfortunate, but there are cases in which weddings go on that the parents really object to. Some of them don't even come. Those are the unfortunate cases. This is the sheer. This is the first topic I was asked to speak about. And of course, as much more as he said, I just wanted to give you a little bit of a background. I have a, a short list of other topics I was asked to address this evening. One of them, this is, does some, relate somewhat to the uh, topic we just uh, spoke about, is genetic testing. Interestingly, I had a discussion about this in a shear that I'm giving. I started a shear on uh, Jewish medical ethics in my shul on, uh, on Motsoy Shabbos, I know some of you were there everyone's invited to come so from 7 to 8 p.m. singles are especially invited I'm not sure about tonight, we, we serve refreshments afterwards uh-huh, yeah, okay I won't say anything but the refreshments are really a little bit uh, you know. okay, come and find out but this could be a very serious matter 
I'm a firm believer in genetic testing of one type or another. There are two schools, to be, to be brief. One is Dar Yasharim, in which people marry out of ignorance, but at the same time they're protected from diseases which require two carriers, the father and the mother, the husband and the wife. Can only be transmitted if both are carriers. The original Dar Yasharim mandate was eliminating Tay-Sachs. I believe I mentioned last night at the Shir that Rav Shechter, Shalita, and I go back a long way in this discussion when we were raising little children. We went to the very prominent pediatrician who was seeing child after child from, from Williamsburg and from Borough Park. They were afflicted with tay at the time. Because it was just, it's so, it was so common. And one man who lost many children to tay decided to do something about it. And there was testing. You'd get a number. You're not told anything. When the, remember, in that world, it's a little bit easier because there are arranged marriages. I mean, up to a point, they're arranged. So, if Reuven and Rachel, there's a discussion that Reuven should meet Rachel. So, before they even meet, well, he gives his number, she gives her number, and they say, you get, a, you get a red light or a green light. If you get a green light, you know very little. You don't know if anyone is, you may, you, maybe you carry it, maybe she carries it, or he carries it. You don't, you don't both carry it. If you get a red light, you know that the two of you are both carrying something. It expanded way beyond Tay-Sachs now. I think it covers nine different diseases of this nature. This is one way to be protected from this problem of genetic disease. The second way is just get tested and find out what you have. In our world, that resonates a little bit more. But the sad fact is and while the Satma Hasidim have completely eliminated Pesachs from their community, and the people who never went beyond high school, some didn't even go to high school, the community such as is sitting in this room with at least a college degree, most often a master, some has a PhD, but the people going into relationships without any idea about any genetic sensitivity. Nothing. Nothing. And this often leads to situations where a couple is romantically involved, someone is even engaged, and someone's, you know, why don't you get tested? And they get tested, and, they, and the bad news is that, let's say, they're both carrying Tay-Sex. In which case, in my view, they're not to marry. They have to break it up. Despite the possibilities of, you know, what the Samposkin conceiving, testing, aborting, or some of the more modern ways of con- contending with this problem, that's after the fact. But it's simply halachic common sense that you don't get involved in such a relationship. So in, in, in relationships such as ours, where it's not prearranged, so a couple would do well if they're going out and they've established a uh, strong connection to one another and it seems like it you know, may go all the way, this may actually result in a marriage, that at a much earlier stage they should contend with it. Again, one way or the other. Just imagine a case to put the two pieces together. The son is headstrong. 
I want to marry her because you know, she's my soulmate and, uh, and all the other good reasons to marry her. And the parents say, you're crazy. You're asking for a life of misery. One way, either way it's going to be miserable. One way or the other to be miserable. We know she has many milers. Yes, yes. But you're both carrying pay sacks. It just doesn't make sense. So the world say, there are more don't have to listen to my father. I think, it's, I think it's an incorrect statement. I think that if he goes to his rabbi, I presume, in most cases his rabbi will tell him, your father is, is making a reasonable request. He means for your benefit. And you should do well to, you're even obligated to, to obey what he has to say. Okay. The last part of my comments, and I guess we'll leave some time for questions. Uh, either public questions, pre-refreshments, or private questions during the refreshments. Is some of the techniques some of the mores of the dating process. What I'm saying now is my own view on these matters. I'm not sure if other Rabbanim agree or don't agree. I'm just giving you this is certainly only my opinion, but I was asked to give my opinion. In the world outside, there are different ways in which people meet, different modes what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. For example, two-timing. You know what that means? Is there a person in this room who does not know what that means? Okay, so you all know what it means. I am a firm opponent of two-timing. My understanding is if a boy is going out with a girl, he's going out with that girl. And a girl's going out with a boy, with that boy. Now with two at the same time. In society at large, it's, uh, it's what we call Maisen Bucholio. It is a very common occurrence. As a matter of fact, when I made this statement in the yeshiva some years back, very, very distinguished uh, rabbi in the yeshiva attacked it. Well, he doesn't understand what's wrong. What's wrong? I mean, this is how they grew up in... Uh, the years of Shonim Kadmonios, the years gone by, you know, they, had, you know, they were friendly with this one and this one that was considered a, a dating relationship. So, I haven't changed my mind. I still think it's bad. Because by definition, that's, <laughs> this is, the dating process, what they sometimes call today, is a new term. Dating for tachlis. You know, quote. As opposed to, you know, teenagers having a good time. So, so, so then, it's, you're trying to establish a relationship with a particular individual. Of course, this could lead to some tense moments. You know, a couple is going out, and then let's say one is going away for a while. So where are they holding now? Are they, are they on or are they off? If they're on, according to what I'm saying, that means they shouldn't see anybody else for that period of time. So maybe they should decide we're off. It's not fair to hold someone hostage you know, while you go away or something, so we're off. And if nothing happens in a month, well, we're, we're, we can always pick up again. But it should be either on or off, not, not two at the same time. People sometimes have very loose lips concerning stories of dates. 
can understand the person has a date and comes back and you know, male or female comes back to the to the room, to the to the apartment, new. <laughs> so it was nice. Or it's not gonna be. Those two statements are completely acceptable. No problem. But to go into the nitty gritty and to to, to to chew it over and to in most cases it's inappropriate. But there can be cases where a person needs to seek counsel advice when you know there are certain issues which are critical. So you need someone to talk to. Of course that is appropriate. But my suggestion is that the person who you talk to should not be a peer who's in the middle of the same shit of process. One should rather, if possible, choose someone who's survived the process, who's happily married, and speak to them. The all people who are married, they come with a different perspective, uh, more experience in, in, in what works, hopefully better that way. Moreover, in that case, the stories including the positives and the negatives, and the negatives, you're permitted to say certain negatives if it's what we call the toelas, it's for a purpose to know if I should proceed or not proceed. Hopefully we'll stay with the individual with whom you're speaking. If everyone's in the same big single scene, unfortunately it just travels. And then come back to haunt the individual you just went out with. To his or her detriment. That's not fair. Often, we have Shadchanin, matchmakers. Now, at matchmaking, there are different stages. There's the ideas person. And there's the person who makes the formal suggestion. And there could be yet a third person who is, you know, if they start to go out and they say a little bit, mm, we'll call them the, the closer. <laughs> the Yankees have a closer, right? So, uh, the closer. These are halachic constructs. Because Shatchan used to be paid. It's a lot paid sometimes. There's a whole discussion, you know, how they divide the, the pot. The, the, the matzia, you know, the one, the, the ideas person, the one who's the metavech, goes between, or the, 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 the one who's the, the goymer, who completes it. So ideas, I believe, everyone can have an idea. All ideas are you know, accepted. You went out with a girl or a boy, it's not for you, but it's for somebody else. How many wonderful marriages are result from that kind of a, of a, of a wonderful act of chesed? However, I believe that the individual who was interfacing with the boy and girl, and certainly the one who was involved in the negotiations or the complications at the, at the later stage, should be someone who was married. Don't believe that singles should be involved in these things if there's so much potential for the conflict of interest or lack of understanding. It's just not wise. Okay, in conclusion, I'm supposed to have ended, but I'll just say a few more words about methods of meeting men and women 
that weren't necessarily around you know, in, in, in the classical world will give low-tech and high-tech low-tech are we'll call single mixers, groups Shabbatons Shiurim camps summer camps and I, I'm in many of the camp marashas you, many of you probably know with that sweatshirt and I met my Besheret at Camp Marashas and there were hundreds of Shaduchim Baruch Hashem which have emerged so it's not for everyone I'll concede that but it certainly should be viewed as a possible method of finding a marriage partner it's true in certain circles it is taboo but you'd be surprised how these taboos are falling when the shidduch crisis, as it's called in some circles, is becoming more pronounced. Some of you may know that there was just, I think it was last Shabbos. Maybe, maybe some of you may actually have been there. Gateway, Arachim, uh, had a, a wonderful weekend with uh, over a hundred young men and young women. And I'm told this last year was a whirlwind of dates. Uh, ooh, it's wonderful. You'll think, well, this is limited to the more, you know, we'll call it, uh, I don't know how to put proper word to use, a, a uh, moderately yeshivish crowd. And that's how they were those pegs, you know. <laughs> but you know, when you come to the hardcore, they'll never allow such a thing. It's not true. They did exact, they're the ones who pioneered it, as a matter of those who are in the know. They pioneered it. Except they had certain, you know, they waited longer to get involved in those weekends. I'm not sure it was more than one, but there certainly was one which produced certainly at least a handful of Shaduchim. You had to be a bit older. But they realized, even in that world, we'll call it the Borough Park world, just for the lack of a better, for a better term. They realized that boy and a the girl, they get older, and it's, it's just in such great numbers, and you can't sit and sit, no one-on-one and it's, it's absurd so I remember when they, when they did it and by the way if you don't know about it it's not a surprise there was no publicity zero it was done under the radar I guess to protect themselves from the kanoim in that, uh, in that circle or for, maybe to protect people from undesirables wanting to come I don't know what the reason was it was done under the radar in the chayof of it was very successful so I said to myself, why do I have to wait till the boys turn, I think they had 28, and the girls turn 26, I don't know, something along the way, why wait so long? So sure enough, gateways approached the, we'll, we'll call them moderate yeshivish crowd, and they started at a much younger age, I think it's wonderful. Of course, it's, it's, you'd say, well, it's better if they meet in the classical way, one-on-one, with, with the shatcha, whatever, but that's at the beginning, give them, give them a year or two. But after that passes, why are you waiting so long? Every year that passes, another year. And That's my most important message for tonight. Uh, it, it bothers me that in certain communities, being single is considered, you know, you know okay. You're married, you're single, it's all the same thing, you know. Existentially, it's the same thing. No, low tov. The Torah says low tov is low tov. 
it's true on an existential basis, but it's even more true for our purpose on a practical basis. The Shulchan Aruch says a person should not be single. It leads to all kinds of avarice. And it's just, it's bad. Finally, high tech. So you know that the, um, there's a thing called the internet. <laughs> I assume you all know. <laughs> so on the one hand, there are terrible things going on on the internet. Terrible. There are predators. There are, there are chat rooms which can lead to disasters. All kinds of terrible things. On the other hand, the internet it brings people together from all different, and it could be it could be good too. You may know something called Frumster, which has uh, a measure of success, although some of the pitfalls that exist in the more general society exist there as well. So Rav Shechtershlita and I were both involved in uh, a site which is called Saw You at Sinai. And if you if you hear that. It's a much more uh, limiting and limited, and hopefully protective. Those don't know how it works. I guess just press soywithsinai.com. I don't know how do these things work. You'll figure it out. Uh, the, the fundamental premise is that there are, it goes, again, it's really the old system reworked in the high tech. So if a man or a woman goes on this site, not that men look at women, women look at men. That could lead to all I mean, it could be good things, it could be bad things. It's only the Shatchanim who see all these young men, all these young women, and they see their ages, and they see this, and, oh, they can have an idea, which in previous generations they had to see the people and talk to the people. Now it's just a facilitator. And they've had many successes. I believe it's, it's, it's halakhically proper, appropriate, and it's just another way to use the the technology of our generation to overcome problems which have arisen in our generation. Hopefully, with these lessons in mind and others which you will pick up from other shiurim or svarim, everyone here will survive. Not only survive, but thrive. And succeed in building, in the words with which I began, a binyan aday at. Questions? If there are any questions, please feel Any question you want to ask publicly for Abshechta or for myself, please do so now. Yes. Talk loud, please, if you don't mind. Stand up. Okay. It's a tremendous positive which I believe should be used when a couple is married and discover that they have this genetic in- incompatibility. However, with all the joy and, and the excitement which is justifiably attached to the IVF system, primarily in our world as it assists otherwise infertile couples, 
it's not something that we go into in the first instance. In other words, a couple say, you know, okay, we're going to have children, we only want boys. I only want girls. So we'll do with no problem. We'll just, uh, you know, make sure to not to conceive no nationally, only through IVF. See, that's terrible. You know, IVF is not a is not a band aid. You know, okay, it's, it's a it's a whole process. It has many halachic issues attached to it. Again, I'm not opposed to IVF. No, I don't want to I'm, I'm not opposed to IVF. I'm opposed to entering into a marriage when there's an alternative. I'll agree with you if a if a man or a woman has a particular genetic dominant situation where it's either IVF. PGD, you know, that's, or I marry nobody, then I agree with you. But if the case is that, you know, they could just marry someone else, I think that, that's the proper way to go. I know it's just not so romantic we have to speak, so just, uh, but um, I'm giving you advice. You know, you have a lack of constraints. Someone say, I can't separate from this person, so can I marry the person even though it's a lockly questionable? And, you know, so people say, well, you can't separate, so there's no such thing. That's why the Hasidim are smart. The Hasidim are smarter than us. They know before they start what, uh, what's on the table. So, if you ask me, that would be that would be better in our world as well. Whether it be through Dor Yeshara or whether it be through knowledge. If a person, you know, you have a shotgun, and it shouldn't be. If we're so smart and we're so sophisticated, and we know that carrying this doesn't mean anything, because no one's other. See, call it the shotgun. Well, you know, I want this. By the way, you should know that I carry X. And any girl you suggest to me, or boy, find out if they carry the same disease. That's all. You don't like that, then try Dar Yashar. You don't like either of them, so wait to get into a relationship and take the chance. It's going to have to break up. I'm just trying to be, think straight. I'm trying to put the, the mind before the heart. Which I think is important for Shaduchim in general. Not, I, I know the heart is critical, but the mind before the heart. Are there any more questions? Yes, please stand up so we can, everyone can hear you. Um, I just wanted to know because I feel like moving into a stage from a college graduate to um, being a mother and then having Okay, that's a very... It's an excellent question. I can't speak for anybody but myself. I believe a most wonderful opportunity for singles to meet is at the Shabbos table. I think it's preferred that the Shabbos table be a Shabbos table of a couple. And singles are invited males and females. You may say, I espouse an extraordinarily liberal view. I want to tell you something. My wife and I attended 
exactly a year ago, on the Thanksgiving weekend, there was a session at the a convention of Agudas Yisrael on the Shidduch crisis. And we went to part of that session. A lady gets up, who's active, I believe, in an organization called Inve HaGefe, which is their uh, version of Megan Shidduch. And she gets up and says to the people, and there are hundreds of people, you know, is it a good convention? Make sure the most important thing is that every Shabbos at your table you have to have boys and girls and they have to be there to have to meet the most important thing. I thought they throat. I don't know what. Everyone listened to her nicely. No one said it was wrong. No one came to correct it with all the big rabbanim sitting in the front. No one said it was wrong. So it's an idea whose time has come. Even if it wasn't necessary in a in different time and place. Now, certainly in a community where, you know, until a generation or two ago, women would live at a home until they got married. Men, if they weren't home, they were in a yeshiva. Now, it's a whole new world. People are, you know, moving out of their homes either because they're out of town or for other reasons. And they're congregating in, you know, let's, say, let's say, for example, here in Washington Heights. We have to do everything we can to try to help the young men and young women get married. This is, as some of the Mepharshim explained, one of the questions that's asked after 120 years, Asakta Bipiria Verivia. The simple chat is, did you have children? But many suggest, Asakta. Well, you know, what's, what's Asakta? Well, you know, someone preoccupied, so involved. It means you were involved in helping the Shidduchim. And thereby, helping people fulfill Purvu. So I'm very much, I myself, I'm very much in favor. If everyone in the room was single, one can have more reservations. Because sometimes it could lead to, at least if one couple is engaged, they're almost married, that's, that's, that's somewhat of a, of a protection. I know I'm speaking of a particular case that happened in this neighborhood, where I know all four people, well that's exactly what happened. So, I can't speak out against that. I can't. But uh, I think it's better if it's, it's just, I think it's, it, it'll even work better. I think it'll even work better, I think. I can't say for sure, but I think if it's, a, if it's at the home of a couple. That's my understanding. Are there any other questions? Please stand up. A major problem. I'm happy to report to you, you may not be aware of it, that there are many, many married couples in Washington Heights. <laughs> no, really. I can give you a list. I have a list in my house. Uh, it, it, it wasn't always this way. Well there, well, there were no singles in the Heights until that long ago either. But, but uh, both marrieds and singles have come into this neighborhood in droves. And I don't know the exact ratio. I don't know. But it seems to me... But if every married, again, I, I can't impose upon all the married couples in Washington Heights, I, I, I just can't do that. But if every married couple would have, just fill their table. Don't, not take big, big, huge tables, just fill, you know, fill the shopper's table. With, uh, you know, maybe uh, some young men and some young women, every shopper's, I think that that would probably do the trick. 
of course, they're over involved with, with their own children and they have a lot of you know, issues. I'm not here to say any bad about these couples. But if we would go to them, perhaps through Rabbi Schneider, we could make a, a, a establish a, a list of, of, of who, the, who the married couples here are and try to find out who the singles are and try to. We have some people I think who have, uh, are interested in doing things of this nature. I think it would go a long way in helping people out. I think so. Any more questions? Okay, so we'll adjourn the formal part of the program. Please enjoy the refreshments, and our Rabbi will and I will circulate if you have any private questions. Thank you very much for coming. <laughs>